choir and musicians. Uh, it's amazing the variety and the, the quality of the music they bring to us week by week. What a blessing. Back while I was in Zambia, we had a message here by Josh from the book of Job, and it was good, and I know because I listened to it, and you can listen to it too, and you can listen to it because we have a website, and you can go to Gospel, um, First Baptist, excuse me, I'm about to give you the wrong one, firstbaptistdublin.org, and all kind of things will come up about our church, and it's better than ever, it's available to you. And you can click on little boxes and things will appear. And in one of those boxes you can find all the recent messages of our church and listen to them. And it's just very, very easy to do. It's an amazing time in which we live. Uh, Nathan used to listen to First Baptist in Korea, uh, First Baptist Dublin, uh, through that network. And so that's available. So anyhow, all that to say, uh, Josh gave you a message on the book of Job on suffering. And so I don't want to duplicate that or... Uh, try to rework that in any way, just going along with that because that is an ongoing theme of Scripture. We want to turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians should have been named something else because nobody wants to be second anything. And I think the, the book has not been uh, taken to the church at the same level it might have been if it had been named something different. It should have been Achaeans or something like that, and it probably would have gotten a little more exposure. I'm on a long project. It started when Nathan was a baby, when he was one year old, and I was in seminary uh, taking Romans. Uh, I, uh, we had elected uh, assignments of what you could do in response to the text night by night, and so I chose to diagram the Greek text of the book of Romans. Uh, so he sat there in his swing, rocking along with me, cranking it up and uh, trying to diagram the book of Romans. Well, I, it's hard to do. Uh, I learned to enjoy doing it, and I learned to use that as a way to just begin the process of studying a passage of Scripture. Uh, years later, I re-adopted that process and launched into a long-range goal of diagramming the entire Greek New Testament, which is uh, pretty crazy uh, thing to do. Uh, but uh, it has, over the years, as we, especially here at First Baptist, have worked our way through the Bible, it's whittled down to not too much left. And for several years, Nathan has been asking me, Dad, when are you going to do 2 Corinthians? What about 2 Corinthians? What's wrong with 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Well, today we turn to 2 Corinthians in honor of Nathan. Uh, and because that's one of the missing links. I'm down to 2 Corinthians in the middle third of the book of Revelation. And then when I finish that, I can spend the next 30 years going back and improving what I did a long time ago when I didn't know what I was doing in Galatians and some of those books. But uh, 2 Corinthians has a lot of challenges. It's not a good book to just preach all the way through on Sunday mornings because of the nature of it. So what I want to do in the coming months is just some highlights or a sampler of 2 Corinthians key passages because there are some things that Paul says there in the midst of all the drama that's woven into the chapters. Uh, there are some major significant things that he says to the Corinthian church that speak well to us and to our times and to our personal lives. A lot's going on at Corinth. The Corinthians are pretty wild and crazy people and their church is 
probably the most challenging church in Paul's collection of churches that he responds to. And from uh, the letters you pick up on this correspondence is going back and forth and some of the, the strained relationships that's there and, and him trying to minister to them long distance. And so we're going to just not try to pull all that out on a Sunday morning. There's just no way to do that. So you read that on your own and we're going to look at key passages along the trail of this great letter. Now I titled it, uh, and you'll find this title in, in lots of study Bibles and commentaries, The God of All Comfort, the first 11 verses of this book. I gave it that title because so many other people have, but I want to give it a second title uh, that's not going to be on your screen, but it's The God of All Encouragement. And so this morning I want to invite you to be Bible translators and deal with a little bit of the process of the challenge of decision-making that Bible translators make every day when they're out there doing what Bible translators do. Verse by verse and word by word, you have to make some choices about how you're going to bridge from one language into another. And you come into this part, of the early part of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, and there's a word that surfaces in several different forms over and over and over so that there are about 10 or 11 times in just these verses where this word will appear. Sometimes as a noun, sometimes as a verb, but it keeps popping up there, and it's usually translated by English translators as comfort, either as a verb of comforting people or the idea or the noun comfort. It's woven all through it. You're going to see that in a few minutes here. So what is this word? It's In the Greek language, you have a word para. You've heard all this before if you've been here a while. Uh, Para means, among other things, it can mean beside. And then there's a Greek verb kaleo, which sounds like call. And that's what it means. Kaleo means I call. And you put those two together and you get parakaleo, which is a common Greek verb which has to do with Remember, it's two things, beside and calling, and and you put it together, and that word came to carry the significance of something coming alongside of another uh, for the purpose of communicating comfort or encouragement. It becomes, in its noun form, one of the spellings becomes one of the names of the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter or the encourager. So when you come down to... This word in the, the is used in the New Testament 108 times in verb form alone, spread throughout. And the book that uses it the most, with the possible exception of the book of Acts, but probably the book that uses it the most is 2 Corinthians. And you find it in the, the noun form about 29 times. Uh, and again, 2 Corinthians wins is the book that uses it the most. So you pull out your Greek lexicon because this is obviously a big deal in this book. You want to know about this word and you look it up and it gives you a range of meanings. And the two that prevail that are the most common renderings of this word are comfort and encourage. And those are a lot alike and they go together. But there's a little bit of difference between the two. And I want you to note uh, in the next coming moments as we look at this together, the distinction between the two And then you've got to make a call because you're Bible translators this morning. Which way are you going to render that? John Wycliffe, coming out of Latin, rendered that in early English, uh, early modern English or middle age English, 
uh, late middle-aged English as comfort. And William Tyndale, as he came for the first time out of a Greek text into the English language, made it comfort. So that tradition carried on down through all the Bibles of the 1500s and into the 1611 King James Bible and into the modern translations of today. So most Bible translators have come down on the side of translating what we look at today as comfort. Most times the word in the New Testament has to do with encouragement and it's rendered that way. So what's your call? What are you going to do? You're going to go with the long tradition of translating it like so many have or be daring and, and call it encouragement. I got out my old Noah Webster's dictionary the other day and looked up those two words. Noah Webster, uh, his first Webster's dictionary was done by him, obviously. And he gave us these range of definitions for the two words. I should have had this on overhead or something. Comfort, he said, could be to strengthen, to cheer, to strengthen the mind when depressed, or to console. So it's on the negative side, sort of, of people that are struggling and need to be kind of built up or get a hug or an, uh, words of encouragement that, that comfort the soul. People that are struggling. Some of you today, no doubt, are, are needing biblical comfort of the kind that really only God can give, but sometimes gives through his people. But you need comfort because you're very discouraged and maybe depressed. I cross paths with depression all the time. I don't struggle with that a great deal myself, but uh, my job puts me in the place of listening to a lot of depression. I had a phone call from a friend from another church in another city uh, recently, and he cried on the phone for an hour about circumstances that are not his fault, that are out of control, and he's thinking, what in the world am I going to do with my life? And the Bible talks about comfort as that coming alongside by God and by God through his church to strengthen and to cheer up and to console those that are in such depression. But here's this word that can also be rendered encouraged, and Noah Webster defines it with this range of meaning, to give courage. That's obvious from the word encouragement. To give courage, uh, to increase confidence of success, to inspire with courage or spirit, or to embolden. And I like all of those. And I find myself in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 wanting to go with that track and, and use those words. But this is what I want to suggest to you this morning. We want to continue the thought of both of those realities. Comfort, which is kind of negative, responding negatively, but positively to negative circumstances. And encouragement, which is calling for some kind of action. Uh, I want to keep both of those in mind for the next few minutes as we march through this passage and I want to suggest to you that this is what we need to do in the end is take both of those, like, kind of like if you ever made a ball out of tinfoil and you, take, you kind of wad it up and then you take another layer and you put it over that. I want us to take both of those significances of this word and put them in the same ball and say this is our word that Paul's talking about. And it does console, it talks about consoling of the spirit, but it also emboldens the individual and the church to be what we're supposed to be. Paul says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Remember Timothy? We've been in, in the letters to Timothy for months. 
And here's his buddy Timothy. And Timothy, our brother, at this time, somewhere in the mid to late 50s A.D., Paul's writing back to the Corinthians, and Timothy's with him at that point. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints that are throughout Achaia. Achaia is the region. Achaia is southern Greece today, like Athens and south. Uh, Macedonia is northern Greece in the New Testament. So he's talking about those of you there and the city of Corinth and, and really the whole area. We're writing to all of you guys. He says, grace and peace to you. Typical Pauline introduction. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. May God's grace abound in your life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, there's your choice. You can begin at this point, if you want to, to swap out some words. And uh, while I'll, I'll read it in the New American Standard, and just like almost all English translations, it's going to consistently come down with this word comfort and, and be almost very repetitious. But I invite you to also plug in encouragement uh, as we go through. Uh, the Father of mercies and the God of all encouragement. Need encouragement? comes from God. God is the ultimate source of true encouragement. He says, who comforts or encourages us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Comfort, 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 comfort. It's about 10 or 11 times in this paragraph. Or you could say, who encourages us in all our affliction with, uh, that we will be able to encourage others with the encouragement we have ourselves been encouraged by God himself. Paul says, uh, I have lived this stuff. Not just talking randomly about a topic I don't know about. He's saying out of the overflow of my life experience, I'm trying to bring to you comfort and encouragement. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also... Our comfort or encouragement is abundant through Christ. And there's a lot of baggage that comes with being a Christian. From the third chapter of the Bible on, you're in a fallen, sinful world that can be incredibly wicked and, and very harmful and hurtful and very, very, very discouraging, even for devout believers. And Paul says, I understand that. I understand it because, man, I've been living it. But just as all those sufferings of Christ are ours because of our commitment to truth and righteousness, so also is our comfort. And Christ is there to encourage us as the church. Christ is there to encourage us in our relationships and in our homes and our personal lives. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. The hard times have a purpose, Paul says. It's not just random stuff happening with God asleep in heaven. It's all this affliction is working its way out for your comfort, your encouragement, and your salvation. And if we are comforted or encouraged, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. And you can find yourself and probably... Everybody here has or will at some point. You find yourself in some circumstances uh, where things are so discouraging 
that you think, I don't think anybody understands what I'm going through. And it's just not true because there are people all over the place going through the same stuff in this struggling, fallen world. Paul says all this is working toward a purpose and God is going to do things through those circumstances. That doesn't mean God uh, paints the picture and paints sin, sin and adversity and struggle. But given that those realities are there, God is at work through them and he brings comfort to the heart and encouragement to the soul for the future and a response to those circumstances. Verse 7, he says, In our hope for you, is firmly grounded, knowing or having come to know that you are sharers of our sufferings. So also you are sharers of our comfort. Paul says, I know from personal experience how hard it is out there in the world trying to live for Jesus. But I want you to know from my testimony that suffering carries forth in great encouragement because God's purposes are lived out in our lives. And we are on the winning team. We are on the prevailing team. And we must never, ever lose sight of that. No matter how discouraging things might be in our own lives or in our observation of our culture or our nation or all the things that we see around us, we never lose sight of the reality that Christ is is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he's on his way and he will win and you're on his side and you will reign and rule with him. It's so easy to lose that and not losing salvation. I'm not saying that. Just in our, our daily consciousness and our reaction and our response to things around us. Oh, you're sharers in this comfort. You're sharers in this encouragement. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. In Paul's writing, in Paul's context, Asia is part of what we call Turkey today. Asia today is massive. It's the biggest continent on the earth. It's huge. Uh, Asia in the New Testament was a, a portion of what we call Turkey. And you can read in the book of Acts a lot of Paul's experiences as he wandered up into Turkey and uh, was... Uh, persecuted and beaten and run out of town and experienced all those hardships for the cause of the Great Commission. He says, we don't want you to be unaware of those kind of things. We're not bragging. We're not crying and whining. We just want you to learn from our experience about our affliction in Asia and that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we even despaired, uh, we despaired even of life. This is the most spiritual man that ever lived next to Jesus. This is a spiritual giant writing from his heart. This is a guy who knows all the answers. This is the guy that gave you Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and on down the line. This is the man who took the gospel to the nations. This is a spiritual giant. And he talks about his experience and he says, man, it was so heavy. It was so excessive. It was so beyond our natural human strength that we despaired even of life. We were just ready to just die. We're out. We're exhausted of resource. We don't know what to do. He says, that's, that's where we found ourselves in our, our natural flesh. 
He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead. Paul says, God allowed all that in our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves. Paul wrote in another place, I die daily. He talks about coming to the point where you die to your old self and you're raised in Christ and in newness of life in Christ, you approach spiritual victory. And looking back at those experiences that are recorded in Acts for us, that he refers to here to the Corinthians, he says, man, we, we were walking as dead men, dead to the past. Uh, but something happens when you get to the point that Paul describes here, you become bulletproof. And when you're dead in Christ and alive in him, uh, the world can't touch you anymore. And you're liberated to be everything Christ wants you to be. And so he says, we learn to not put our confidence in our physical strength and our personal health and the resources in our, our I don't know if they have wallets, in, in our pouches or the friends we might have or not have along the trail. We learn not to look to those things, but to God alone who raises the dead. The highest of all miracles, the raising of the dead, the God of the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ the resurrection, ultimately, of true believers. And he says, that's where we put our trust, not in the resources of this world. In verse 10, he says, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. We learn to trust him, and we do trust him, and we will trust him all the way through to the end. So First Baptist folks, 21st century, many, many years later, that's your call to trust in the God of the resurrection that he will deliver. Now, I don't know what he's going to do with the United States and all our politics and all our culture and all, but his purposes will prevail, and those who are... Uh, aligned with Christ, will be delivered ultimately, victoriously, gloriously, and called into his presence. And final, awesome victory. Paul says, and he will yet deliver. He is not through yet with his awesome plan of redemption. One more verse to the passage, he says, and you also joining in helping us through your prayers, you're also joining in that, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Pray, 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 pray. The most spiritual people I've ever known, the people I respect the most, late in life say if they had at all to do over, they would pray more. Carl Henry, smartest man I ever met in person, the great Baptist theologian that's now with Jesus, uh, in his 70s, teaching us in a, in a Bible class, said, guys, if I had it all to do over, I would pray more. And Paul says, through your prayers, Corinthians, when you get your spiritual act together and you're not being petty and squabbling, when you're focused on things that matter, your prayers are shaping and shaking the world. Don't you ever, ever, ever quit. Turned on the History Channel, which is not surprising. Uh, watch that from time to time. There's a lot of stupid stuff on the History Channels. There are three of them, and sometimes there's no history on any of them. It's crazy stuff. But I turned it on uh, not too long ago, 
and up came a documentary on Jimmy Doolittle. I had a friend, Clark, in high school. We were best friends back in those years, and uh, his dad was a, you, you didn't have the Air Force then, you had the Army Air Corps, and he had been a co-pilot with Jimmy Doolittle. And some of you know all about Jimmy Doolittle and heard about him for years. Jimmy Doolittle was in the Army Air Corps as a colonel on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Devastating attack that sank uh, many of our ships and took the lives of many of our personnel that were at that remote location wherever Hawaii was. The Japanese uh, surprisingly uh, launched an uh, overwhelming invasion and destroyed a huge portion of the U.S. Navy in a matter of just a few hours. The U.S. Uh, had to catch its breath. You ever had, if you've ever played ball, you've had your breath knocked out. You know, it's like you can't really do anything until you uh, finally get your breath back and you begin to function again. And the United States leadership, with our breath knocked out of us because of Pearl Harbor, started to say, what do we do now? And they started to scheme a plan and got Colonel Doolittle to organize a a team of bombers. They selected, after looking at about eight different aircraft, they chose a B-25, which was called a midsize, a fairly small twin-engine bomber. And it had to be small enough to put on an aircraft carrier, which was an absurd, crazy concept to put a bomber on an aircraft carrier. They had to prove, first of all, that it would even be able to take off on that short little space of of ramp that's there. But they came up with a scheme and got 24 B-25s. They sent them to Minnesota and retooled them and took all the heavy weight off of them. And they started training in Columbia, South Carolina, where the Columbia Airport is now and then eventually moved them down to Pensacola and painted an aircraft carrier deck on the runway and lined those B-25s up and started taking them off to prove that in that short space they could get them airborne with that weight factor and fly. And they loaded them on the USS Hornet and crossed the Pacific Ocean. No guns on these planes, no turret guns, no nothing. All the weights out, and every one of those carried four 500-pound bombs some of them regular bombs, some of them incendiary bombs. But uh, by April 1942, just a little over four months after Pearl Harbor, a United States aircraft carrier took those bombers, they launched, they flew over downtown Tokyo, released bombs, and flew on over to China. It was shocking. It was really as shocking as Pearl Harbor. Where in the world did they come from? How did the Americans get bombers to Tokyo? And so quickly, it was, it was shocking. Well, 15 of 16 planes launched, crashed, mostly in China. Most of the crews, amazingly, were spared and eventually rescued. And Doolittle assumed that he would be court-martialed for the massive loss of aircraft and, and what he, he saw was a discouraging endeavor. Instead, the U.S. government gave him the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest honor, and made him a general and put him in charge of all kind of things, and he ended up flying in Africa and Europe after that. Both of those attacks, Pearl Harbor and Doolittle's Raid, were shocking. But the message sent by Doolittle's Raid to the Japanese nation at that point is, we are coming, and you have done an evil thing to us, but we are coming. 
And it may take us uh, months, it may take years, it may take decades, but we are coming. And when we get there, we will win. When we get there, we will prevail. And over the next four years, they built the most incredible air force that had ever existed and the greatest navy that had ever existed. And they crossed the Pacific island by island, and they did exactly that. My dad was a navy pilot, so I grew up hearing all about how awesome the navy was in those years. It was a message. It was a signal. We're not out of business. We are not through. We're just starting. A few days ago, we were in Caesarea Philippi. I've shown you pictures on the screen of Caesarea Philippi. It's in upper uh, Israel. It's even beyond Galilee, up in another part of Israel, in the shadows of the Golan Heights. And Jesus took his disciples there. And the face of that shrine of ancient Greek paganism and idolatry and ask who do men say that I am? And you know the, the answer. Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus commended him for that. And he said, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. And he says, you're Petros, you're rock. And on this Petra, this, this rock, and I think he was talking about all the disciples, I will build my church. And then, and here you, you okay, Bible translators, you've got a choice. You can translate it like the New American Standard does, and it says, and the gates of hell, uh, or the gates of Hades, they say, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Or you can go with the old translations that say, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a tough, it's another call for a translator, because either way is a legitimate way to render that. But the best understanding is both of the above, but especially the old King James. The gates of Haiti, gates don't really attack, gates defend. And I think the message Jesus was communicating there is, you're going to do something. And you're not going to sit back and try to find comfort and security where you are. You're going to kick down the doors of hell. You're going to go into the world with this message. You're going to change the planet with the gospel. And all of that evil, and he's got the backdrop of that shrine there in Caesarea Philippi. He says, and even this kind of stuff is not going to prevail against you. You will win. Great words of challenge and exhortation and encouragement from Jesus. Now, you could translate it as very comforting. Even hell's not going to be able to hurt you. You're going to be safe. And a lot of Christians like that. It's like, you mean I can go over on 1700 Meadowdale and lock the door and I'll be all right? And the world can't touch me? And I watch cable TV and eat popcorn and watch the world melt? And I'll be all right? Is that what you're telling me? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's not going to prevail against you because you're going to do something. And just like Doolittle's raid, you and I as Christians, as the church, are called to say to the world around us, we are not going out of business. We are not through. We're just gearing up. And we're coming with the truth. 
and it may be very discouraging along the trail, but the God of all comfort is there to comfort our souls, but the God of all encouragement is to push us forward to do what we're supposed to do. And that's the message of first, Second Corinthians, the first chapter. But it's the message of all the Bible, indeed, is it not? You and I are not called to just merely be on defense. We're on offense for the cause of Christ. So let's get on with it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning that you have called us out of darkness into your light. And you have made us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In our personal testimonies and our collective testimony as the church. Oh, Lord, make us strong. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be committed and excited about our mission. May it be that we are the greatest mission church that we can possibly be. May it be that our testimony of our lives is clear and purposeful. May it be that darkness is threatened by just our presence because we represent Jesus so clearly. Uh, Father, forgive us when we've been cowardly or apathetic and indifferent or careless or sinful and help us to be strong in the faith and strong in our mission. Help us to be a comfort to those that need to be consoled. Help us to be an encouragement and exhorters to those who could do more for the kingdom. Father, we want to be found faithful when all is said and done. Encourage your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.